Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and we're going to start with a quick question. All right. Now try to answer as, as fast as you can. This is for everybody. This is the listener. This is not a necessarily a me-directed question. Right. Okay. You, you out there listening, what's the word... Four, a stone coffin typically adorned with a sculpture or inscription and associated with ancient Egypt, Rome, or Greece. Answer, sarcophagus. Okay. A lot of you listeners probably knew that word. It does come up quite a bit. I mean, we, we do <laughs> talk show. about containers for dead bodies a lot, an awful lot. I wonder why that happens. But anyway, some of you knew that word, and some of you knew it, and you were able to say it immediately. You thought about it, or, or maybe you thought about it for a split second, and you just called it to mind, sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, some of you j- might not have been familiar with the word, had no idea what it was, or maybe you just didn't have any clue what we were getting at with it. You knew the word, but you didn't, you didn't think we were heading in that direction. But then there's a third category of you out there. Some of you knew that you knew the word, but you couldn't deliver it on command. Yeah. So you experience this feeling of knowing, this feeling that you are just about to consummate the retrieval of that information from your memory. The word is it felt like it was right there and you might have made a noise. You might have gone, uh, uh, I know this and snapped your fingers uh, like you had an itch you couldn't scratch. And this is referred to in the psychological literature as tip of the tongue phenomenon. When a word is on the tip of your tongue, the, the feeling of that tip of the tongue sensation is going to be the subject of today's episode. Yeah, and it's often abbreviated to uh, TOT or TOT. So tot. I yesterday did a lot of reading about TOTs. About TOTs, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we will be talking about TOTs a good bit today. Uh, but if you were stuck looking for the word, even momentarily, if you, you, you didn't call it to mind immediately and you weren't just completely stumped and had no idea, but you were in that middle state where you knew you knew the word but you couldn't bring it to mind, stop for a second and reflect back on what that inner experience was like. Sort of review the cognitive journey you traveled to try to find the right word. Before you had the word, what did you feel? Did you have a sense that you knew what letter the word started with? Uh, did you feel like you might have known how many syllables the word had, roughly? And once you heard the word, were you right about those things? And did you keep thinking of a similar word, something that sounds kind of like sarcophagus, but then going, no, no, that's not the word. (laughs) Here, we're going to do another one so you can have a chance to think about it again. This time we're going to do a proper name. Okay. And this, I have to add, this is where I experience uh, tip of the tongue phenomenon the most, almost almost exclusively. Like I really don't encounter the the word-based one uh, much, but when it comes to the names of actors, this is like a weekly game I play in my head. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, we should add that Robert and I played this game back and forth a little bit before we went on air, and I think I stumped him with this one. Okay. So what's the name of the actor who played Fredo in The Godfather? John Cazale. Yeah, John Cazale. Yeah. He, he was in The Godfather, Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, what else? Uh, Deer Hunter, I think. Some of yes, these, some of these big, uh, these big Oscar winning movies of the seventies. He died young. He was a character actor. And he's one of those people who, I think a lot of people who like movies, who, who appreciate especially, you know, the critically acclaimed American cinema mm-hmm. have encountered his name at some point. Yeah. You, you would know it. You would know that you had it back in the, in the casks of your memory somewhere. But it's not easy to reach. Yeah, like we were discussing uh, before we we rolled here on this episode. Yeah, he he died young, but he was a character actor. If he'd been a leading man and he died at his age, we'd have him on T-shirts everywhere. Uh, but no, he was a character actor, and, right. and, and, and as a character actor, you kind of have to have enough films under your belt. You have to like he needed like another decade before he would have reached 
the status of, say, a Buscemi or, uh, you know, Ron Perlman or any of these other character actors who have have reached the point where they're just such a part of our cinematic experience that we cannot forget them. Right. And of course, James Dean only had a few movies, but leading man. There you right. go. He'll be on T-shirts. He'll, there'll be biopics about him. Here's the weird thing, just to throw in like a personal one of mine. And this may not be the case anymore because I keep talking about it with Joe uh, this week. But previously... Oliver Reed will come up a lot. Like, I'll try and remember who's that actor who played that role. Who's the guy who's the lead in The Devils? The guy who can't sing in Tommy. Yeah. Was he in Tommy? Yeah, I he was, wasn't okay. he? I don't know. I've never seen Tommy. Hey, I think uh, he plays Bill Sykes in a movie adaptation of Oliver. Oh, yeah, well, that would that would make sense. He's been, he's been in so many things. He was in, I think his last film was Gladiator. Wonderful actor. Did some great movies. Did some horrible movies that are in their own way great. And, and I've seen plenty of them. But for some reason, it'll come up. Uh, like I'll be watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 with some friends or just sitting around thinking about movies and I'll picture him in his bearded masculine glory and I'll try and remember his name and it just doesn't form. And so it's just like the phantom limbs of my of my mind reaching out towards his face. But you've captured the essence of tip of the tongue here because it's not just that you don't know. It's a combination of not knowing and having the sense that you really should know and you're just about to get it. Yeah. And the, the, the weird thing about this, and of course, this is one of the challenges we wanted to kick off this episode with an example, and we wanted to throw out some examples, but it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find the perfect example of of a TOT or a TOT because it's going to vary depending on an individual's you know personal mind map. Yeah, one thing scientists have found uh, in studying this phenomenon is that it definitely happens more often with words we encounter less frequently, mm-hmm. and depending on who you are, you might encounter some words more often than others. Robert and I probably would not be stumped by sarcophaguses, sarcophagi, by yeah. sarcophagus the word because like we said, we read and talk about containers for dead bodies a whole lot. But some people just probably don't talk about that all that much. So if that's a more uh, a less often occurring word in your day-to-day language, you're probably more likely to be stumped by it. Right. And the same is probably true for actors. Actors that you talk about all the time are really probably not going to give you a hard time. But the ones that you logged in your memory at some point in the past and have not come up since, those are the ones where it's really likely to hit you hard. Yeah, a lot, especially with, you know, like that guy actors, they're sometimes referred to as those character actors that have been in everything. But they're, they're maybe not... They're not even in that Ron Perlman, Steve Buscemi uh, area. You know, they're the kind of actor who always plays a cop. Oh, yeah. You know, they always play a white cop in a film, and therefore they just kind of completely all blend together. Paul Marco and Conrad Brooks. Yeah, I guess. See, I, I have trouble picturing them, but I'm sure if you showed me their photos right now, I would say, oh, yeah, those oh, guys. They're the cops in the Ed Wood movies. Oh, yes, yes, okay. those guys. Okay, yeah, so uh, so we should look at uh, what, what the scientists and psychologists of history have made of this tip of the tongue phenomenon, because it, it goes beyond just being like a weird curiosity of everyday memory. It It's sort of an interesting way to think about what happens when we try to interact with words and, uh, and, and information retrieval in our brains. So William James, the American psychologist and, and philosopher, you might be familiar with him from uh, the Varieties of Religious Experience, mm-hmm. a great text in the history of the study of religions. Yeah, he's, and he's definitely come up on the show before in the past. It, was he the brother of Henry James, the writer? For some I reason, know. I have that in my mind. That could be completely wrong. <laughs> I don't know, but if, if not, I like the idea... Uh, of exploring it as like a retcon uh, buddy picture, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but so William James wrote about tip of the tongue phenomenon. As far as we know, he was one of the first people to really write about it. Robert, why don't you read uh, William James' quote about this? All right. He. Uh, this is how he described it. He said, suppose we try to recall a forgotten name. The state of our consciousness is peculiar. There is a gap therein, but no mere gap. It is a gap that is intensely active. A sort of wraith of the name is in it, beckoning us in a given direction, making us at moments tingle with the sense of our closeness and then letting us sink back without the longed-for term. If wrong names are proposed to us, this singularly definite gap acts immediately so as to negate them. They do not fit into its mold. And the gap of one word does not feel like the gap of another, all empty of content, as both might seem necessarily to be when described as gaps. 
I really like this way of picturing it because mm-hmm. he's he's uh, casting the negative space there, the gap between your knowledge that you know the word and the fact that you can't call up the word as as a thing, a literal thing. Like the negative space is in its own right uh, an entity acting in your mind because it negates the uh, the other path when you, you know that. Uh, it's not this other word, you know, when, right. when you're looking for John Cazale, you know, it's not Al Pacino you're looking for, you right. know, it's not James Caan. So the negative space there is doing something. Mm-hmm. It's just not leading you to John Cazale. Exactly. It's like there is a there is a silhouette. There is an outline. There is a shape there. And you know what's you, you know that certain things are not going to fit in that shape. OK, speaking of that guy actors, how about this one? Who's the actor who played Nancy's dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street? Answer was John Saxon, of course, the great John Saxon. Now, you submitted that question and answer, (laughs) but do you think it would have stumped you if you hadn't? It would not have stumped me. Um, This was very much one, unlike Oliver Reed, I know John Saxon when I see him and like the, the John Saxon, I guess it's just more of a, a singular name. It sticks out more. Whereas Oliver Reed, even though Oliver Reed was very much one of a kind, his name is a little, uh, I don't know. It's a little Britishy. I don't know. Yeah. I, John Saxon to me, I think I'd know him better from enter the dragon. Oh yes. Where he, uh, he plays the most boring of all the fighters. <laughs> <laughs> he does play the most boring of all the fighters. He, he doesn't even really fight all that hard. Mm-hmm. He just kind of happens to be in the right place at the right time. Doesn't he? John Saxon. In a nutshell. Okay, so back to William James. So we said William James was the first person to really describe the the uh, the sensation that we know about, but he didn't call it tip of the tongue phenomenon. Uh, the the name, as far as we know, just comes from regular language, right? That's yeah. a colloquial usage. Yeah, it's it's apparently a universal thing. Uh, in particular, we were looking at uh, the 1999 paper, "Sparkling at the End of the Tongue," the etiology of tip of the tongue phenomenology. And what they did is they surveyed 51 language and they found that 45 of them, so that's about 90%, expressed the feeling of temporary inaccessibility with the same tongue metaphor here. Yeah. And so you might see this in uh, terms of having the word on your tongue or at the back of your mm-hmm. tongue or in the mouth or in the throat or something. Uh, the one that's in the title of that 1999 paper, sparkling at the end of the tongue, is uh, I, sh- I should say it's worth noting that that expression comes from Korean. And that's just pure wildfire. It's so good. Sparkling at the end of the tongue. Yeah, that, that kind of draws back to that that. The description from James that it's wraith-like, you know. Oh yeah, like this is supernatural energy to it. Uh, interestingly enough, of the of the languages surveyed here, American Sign Language, Icelandic, two Sub-Saharan African languages, and uh, Indonesian do not use the tongue metaphor. Huh. Now, additionally, five languages: Cantonese, uh, Mandarin, Hindi, uh, Hausa, and Igbo uh, use the related expression "in the mouth" to describe the the experience. Uh, the Japanese uh, use the expression out of the throat and uh, and some use multiple metaphors. So you'll have the tongue, but then you'll have another one in use as well, with the French being, uh, in my opinion, the most uh, exciting because they uh, use both uh, tip of the tongue and hole in my head. To hole describe in the my sensation. head. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's it's like I almost have it, but there's a hole in my head. And it's I guess the thought like flew out. The, the word just flew out of my head and I cannot grasp it. Oh, that adds a whole new meaning to I, I need to think of John Cazale like I need a hole in my head. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, and certainly one of those where you, uh, you know, you start thinking of languages as kind of like little ecosystems of, uh, of symbolism and metaphor. And if you uh, and, and and some of those ideas are universal, some of them uh, are confined to a number of ecosystems and some seem to be just perfectly encapsulated within that particular language. Yeah, totally. Uh, so we're going to come back to that 1999 paper in a minute, but I, I do want to go back and mention that there's sort of a landmark paper in the study of tip of the tongue phenomenon that came in 1966 by Roger Brown and David McNeil. And this was just called the tip of the tongue phenomenon published in the journal of verbal learning and verbal behavior. And these guys made some of the first systematic observations of what happens during a tip of the tongue state in an experimental setting. Uh, they, they define tip of the tongue as a failure to recall a word of which one has knowledge. 
uh, again, bringing these distinctions of sort of stages of knowledge into things. So mm-hmm. What does it mean when you think you remember something, but you can't bring it to mind? Right. And one of the things they point out at the outside of their paper is that uh, it's interesting, like, if you can't recall the word, how do we know that the person experiencing a tip of the tongue state, a tot, if you will, actually has knowledge of the word? What if it's just an illusion that you yeah. actually have knowledge of the word? And they think that's not the case because you can observe a couple of things. Uh, one of the things is that sometimes people resolve the tip of the tongue state by themselves. So you might sit there for a minute going like, oh, 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 I know it. I know it. And then figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then so that sort of proves that you did actually have it. It's not just a phenomenal illusion illusion that you would have access to the word. And then there are other cases where the purpose where the person, even if they don't resolve the state by themselves, they can recognize the word once it's presented from the outside and they can negate other words. So even if you couldn't come up with John Cazale, you could say, no, not that actor, not that actor. No, no, no. Uh, you could say no to all the other names in the world. Someone says John Cassavetes, and you, well, you you instantly know it's no, it's not John Cassavetes, but that might be enough to say, oh, it's John Cazale. Right, uh, and that's one of the other things that's really interesting in study of the tip of the tongue phenomenon is that certain clues related to the sound of the word can trigger it. They mm-hmm. can send you down the right path. But I, I like this description they give of what the tip of the tongue state is like. They say the signs of it were unmistakable. He would appear to be in mild torment, something like the brink of a sneeze. And if he found the word, his relief was considerable. I think we've we've all find ourselves in a situation. I don't know. I'm speaking for everybody here, but I'll speak for myself. I have certainly found myself in a situation where a a tot is induced in my own mind. Yeah. Uh, amid a conversation with several people. Everyone else moves on to something huh. a little more important. And you're just stuck. And I'm still in that tot. And so stuck every, in the mud. Yeah, everything's just going on around me. And then I resolve the tot. And then I r- disturb the conversation again by saying, ah, it was Don Knotts. Don Knotts played Barney Five or, or whatever the tot might be. <laughs> and nobody else knows what you're talking about. Yeah, everybody else has totally forgotten uh, this. <laughs> what can, what has actually been just a, a, a situation of mental anguish for me for, you know, a few seconds anyway. Yeah. Okay. So I think we, we, we sort of described the phenomenon now. It's, it's these two main mm-hmm. features, inability to recall a word or phrase, and then the subjective sensation that recall is imminent. It's inbound. You're just about to have it. Yeah. But one of the really interesting things about this subject is thinking about, uh, what broader implications this has for how we understand language working in the brain. Like, how does the retrieval of a word happen when you're putting together the language you speak. Just consider this for a second. Usually speaking happens so fast, you don't have time to analyze it. When you go to speak a sentence, where do your words come from? One of the the creepiest things is how little awareness we really seem to have of how language comes out of us. So I start speaking a sentence and the sentence happens, but I don't really know how it happened. I'm not consciously aware of choosing each and every one of the words I use from some kind of dictionary in my brain as I go along. Uh, it, it just sort of happens and then it's out and I don't know what happened in between. Uh, but it's only really in that tip of the tongue state by contrast that the mystery of the regular fluidity of language becomes so clear and so starkly weird. And it is weird, isn't it? Like I, uh, I can't help but think now about the, the difference between, um, my 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 spoken use of language and my written use of language, and not just in the fact, you know, the obvious fact that with written language one has the opportunity to revise and uh, and shift things around and tweak it until you get it in the exact form you want, but just my, you know, by the moment, my real time use of language I feel is rather different in both the the the, the spoken and the written form. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And in fact, I think I have more of the sensation of consciously dealing with something like a mental dictionary when I'm writing Mm -hmm. than when I'm talking. When I'm talking, uh, it feels much more mysterious and obscure to me where the words come from. Yeah, like when I'm writing, uh, then there's like a little guy in my head 
and he's going into a little library and saying, hmm, you know, I think we'll have this word and this word and this word. These are the ones we're going to use. Whereas when I'm speaking, it's more like a, a scene from a, a like a submarine movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're like, all right, let's get the torpedoes in there. We've got to go. We've got to go. He has to somehow express what he wants on his sandwich. Yeah. Is that the right word? I don't care. Get it out there because these sandwiches have to happen. And the sentence is out before you even know what happened. And then you may have had some Freudian slips. And yeah. You mentioned weird body organs that you didn't mean to. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why? I don't know. <laughs> the Freudian slip and, and another area uh, worthy of uh, consideration oh, uh, yeah. for a future episode. You know, I feel like we really should come up with our own proprietary expression for tip of the tongue states. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what it should be. Maybe we'll think about it by the end of the episode. Uh, but I do want to mention that in 1991, there was a paper we looked at that, that had uh, it was called uh, a review of the tip of the tongue experience in psychological bulletin by Alan S. Brown. And this is just a helpful way to quickly summarize some quick findings since that 1966 paper that are on the table about what, what's the deal with tip of the tongue? What, what has science found out? They, they found that one, it's a nearly universal experience. Pretty much everybody experiences it. Uh, number two, on average, it occurs about once a week for people. Okay. I feel like that sounds kind of low. It I, does. I, th- we, I mean, we just triggered it like at least half a dozen times for each of us in this conversation. Be, it may be unusual in us because we spend way more time talking about movies that are full of barely recognizable actors <laughs> that we yeah, feel like. And we lots of know. forgettable names. Yeah. Um, the number three, they say it increases with age. Okay. Number four, it's frequently elicited by proper names. So probably more often than dictionary words, it's you're going to be searching for who was that actor, who was that famous person. Right. Because these these names are not necessarily part of your vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, and you're. Yeah. And it's it's I feel like it's going to be more memorable than your attempt to use a word or recognize a word that exists kind of outside of your standard palette. Yeah. Uh, so fifth observation is it often enables access to the target words first letter. This is a really common experience. Mm-hmm. You you're in a tip of the tongue state. You can't remember the word, but you can remember what it starts with. Yeah. Like, I don't remember what those really weird pyramid things are that they had in the ancient world, but they began with a Z. What were they? What was it? And then you remember, ah, cigarette. Ziggurat. Yeah. I was I thinking know. Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, one of the two. <laughs> okay, six. Uh, these The tip of the tongue states are often accompanied by words related to the target. Again, you can come up with Ziggy Stardust, but not Ziggurat. Right, or if it's you're trying to remember that character's, that character actor's name, you'll remember every film he was in and maybe some of the, uh, the, the characters that he played. Yeah, and then the final thing is uh, the tip of the tongue states are resolved during the experience about half of the time. So it's it's only about half of the time that it's just unresolved anguish. You just end in torture that fades out and you get washed away into the sea of experience and never find an end to your problem. Now, as we'll discuss, though, the, the our age of um, of smartphones and just almost, you know, constant Internet connection, I feel it has, has, has changed the scenario. Used to, if you couldn't think of uh, of the of the name of, a, of an actor like you just had to maybe go home and look through your old film magazines or ask around until somebody identified Fredo for you. But now you're just a click away. Uh, so it, it just comes down to, like, how long am I willing to suffer? I, I find myself in this very scenario. Like, am, sometimes there's a sense of pride, like, I'm going to remember this on my own. I'm not going to go to the smartphone yeah. because I should know who this actor is. It, it's much more satisfying to do it without cheating. Right. And then, But then other times you might be like, Screw it. I need I'm, I need to know. I don't care if I'm driving a car. I need to know who played the high priest in Beastmaster. <laughs> I I have no idea. See, here's one where <laughs> I'm not having tip of the tongue. I just I have no clue. He had a very uh, you, uh I try trying to he had a he has a very pronounced nose, a very hawk like nose in that film. And not David Warner. No. He was in the sequel or maybe the third one. <laughs> Rip Torn. Oh, Rip yeah, Torn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I I just had no idea. Yeah. I really didn't know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't tip of the tongue. I completely outside my memory experience. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, shame on you for for not remembering the priest. Uh, but uh, that's understandable. Okay. Quick question. This is a toy musical instrument that produces a buzzing tone when a person hums into the mouth hole. Answer. Kazoo, kazoo. kazoo. <laughs> no, that one. I think that would have stumped me a little bit. Okay. Not that I don't know the word kazoo, but I'd be, I'd be like, wait, what, 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 what a toy? <laughs> I'd be thinking of something else. Anyway, okay. Here, I got another one for you. Sorry. Okay. 
What's the word for a chemical having a pH greater than seven? It's the opposite of the word acidic, a synonym of the word basic. Probably encountered this sometime in school. The word is alkaline. A base is an alkaline. And this one, this one threw me for a curve the other day. Uh, but though I'm not completely sure if it was a, a full-on tot, because I think I was trying to remember the wrong word. Oh yeah, yeah. What was the word? I can't remember. <laughs> because now all I can remember is uh, is alkaline. Okay. But, uh, uh, well, we should look at these explanatory theories. What's going on when you're having a tot in your brain? And here a big help is uh, one of the papers we mentioned earlier, that 1999 paper, Sparkling at the End of the Tongue, the Etiology of the Tip of the Tongue Phenomenology. Horrible name, but very <laughs> clear uh, laying out of a bunch of the different theories yeah. that have been put forward over the years in explaining how tip of the tongue states uh, could be coming about. And, and they're... All the explanatory theories are, are mostly grouped under two different umbrella terms, right? That's right. So we basically have direct access views and inferential views. Uh-huh. Okay. We'll start with direct access views, just as an overall. Direct access views argue that tots arise from sensitivity to the unretrieved target. So in other words, the memory item in question isn't strong enough for you to recall it, but they're still strong enough to signal a tot. So I like to think of this in terms of a murder has taken place, because there's a mystery here, right? Yeah. There's a problem to be solved. And this is like the witness saying, look, officer, I glimpsed the murderer in the shadows, but I couldn't quite make them out. I can almost name a suspect. Yeah, I think this one, I'm going to have a little metaphor here. We'll see how it works out. Mm -hmm. But if I understand this view correctly, I think these are the types of uh, explanations where it's like you have the starting point and you have the ending point, but you're just failing to make a connection between them. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to this other type of view we're going to talk about, the inferential view. Now, what's the deal with that? Inferential views claim that tots are not based directly on an inaccessible but activated target. So, in other words, tots arise from clues. Okay. Okay. So this would be like the detective saying, I didn't see the murderer, I wasn't there, but based on the evidence, I can almost name a suspect. Okay, so in my other analogy, if the first one was I have the start point and I have the end point and I just can't quite connect them, this would be more like I have the start point and I think I can find my way to an ending point. Yeah, like it's kind of like if you were faced with the John Casale situation, my understanding of this would be like, Maybe I don't actually remember John Casale's name, but I've seen enough of his pictures. I can, and I, and I know his face. Mm-hmm. I know his roles. I should be able to. Yeah. Like I have, surely, surely I am the type of person who knows John Casale's name. Yeah, I, I can put it together. And in this case, I think, uh, the feeling of knowing the word that you experience is, uh, it, it's not based on the word being activated in memory, but your brain subconsciously judging that it has enough information to circuitously figure out the word. If you'll, if you'll just give me a moment, if you, you know, like <laughs> yeah. just have a second. Um, so it's not the presence of the word itself that's exciting you, but it's your unconscious confidence in your own lexical detective powers to pick up on your detective metaphor. Indeed. All right. So at this point, let's break them out. A, a little, little further here. Okay, so under these direct access views, okay, we've got a few different, uh, different ones explained in this 1999 paper. Yeah, basically they 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 center on three, um, three sub hypotheses. Okay, there's the blocking hypothesis. Uh, blocking hypothesis says that tots occur when a retrieval cue prompts retrieval of an incorrect but closely related word, and we realize it's incorrect, thus the blank. So it's like. You're trying to remember John Casale's name. You remember somebody else's name. You're like, no, that's not it. You, the blank makes itself yeah. known. It's like uh, if your Google Maps is constantly telling you over and over to go to the wrong destination. You keep going there, but you every time you recognize it's wrong, so you just back up and start over, mm-hmm. so you never go anywhere. It's kind of like I like I, I basically said this sentence before with different words, but it's if I'm trying to remember Oliver Reed and I say I want to say Rex Harrison, but I know that's wrong, you know. <laughs> Like I, 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 the thing that's coming to mind is definitely not it. Yeah, but I can't remember Oliver Reed's name. You, you have a path blazed through the woods of your memory that's taking you to the wrong destination, but mm-hmm. it's just too well forged. Right. You can't stop following it. All right. The next one is the incomplete activation hypothesis. This holds that tots happen when we can't recall the target word. 
but sense its presence nonetheless. Okay, so this, is, this sounds just like the basic failure hypothesis, yeah. the failure to connect. You really do have the word in memory, uh, but you just can't quite get there for some reason. Some some uh, strength of connection does not exist. Yeah, maybe brain. you're 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 a little tired, you're worn out, you're, everything's not really firing at maximum speed, and yeah. you just can't reach it. Okay, what's the next one? Transmission deficit model. All right. Okay, this says that tots arise from a multi-component memory representation. You retrieve the image, the semantic meaning of the thing, but not the word. So maybe the sound even or the smell, but not the word. Oh, you mean like the semantics associated with the concept of the word? Yeah. But what you're searching for is the sound of the word, and yeah. you can't do that. Exactly. So those are the three main direct access views. Okay, those are those are the uh, I saw I saw the the killer in the shadows, but now I can't exactly remember his face. Right. Uh, but what's the what are the detective views? The inferential views. All right. There are two main ones here. The first one is Q familiarity theory. This holds that tots are based on an assessment of the level of recognition of a particular cue or question. Now, what does that mean? You don't have to actually have the memory item stored away, but, and this is my read on this one, is that you feel like you should know it. So this is more directly related to what I said earlier about inferential views. Like, I feel like I'm the type of person who should know that, and I believe that strongly enough that I'm straining to remember it. Okay, but it seems like, just from my uh, naive viewpoint, maybe, it seems like that one would have a harder time explaining those cases where you have a tot, you feel like you're about to remember something, and then you do remember it. Yeah, it's like this one's harder for me to like. It's harder for me to to read this one and then think back and try and feel like I and, and recognize it in my own experience. Yeah, I feel like the best I can come up with is maybe like trying to remember state capitals of states that I don't think about anymore. Because uh-huh. there's definitely a point in everybody's history where you had to memorize all the states and their capitals or, or various other things, like memorizing the periodic table or memorizing you know, all the nations of Africa, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you end up not carrying around with it. But at some point, you knew it. And you know that you knew it. Yeah. Even if you don't actually remember it anymore. Oh, but maybe you're thinking you can piece it together from other pieces of information in your brain that are more readily accessible. Like, uh, maybe you can remember the state capitals if you can picture a map in your head. Yeah, or, or think of the sports teams that are associated with it. I don't know. Okay, you know? that, that makes more sense. And then there's one more explanation, uh, under the, uh, inferential umbrella, right? Yes. Accessibility heuristic. Tots are based on the amount and intensity of partial information that rememberers retrieve when they cannot recall a target answer. So I remember everything but her name. I should be able to remember her name. Okay. That's, so, that's my read on this. So, so you, the difference between a tot and just not knowing something yeah. is, uh, is how much other stuff peripheral to this word you remember. Yeah. Especially if it's really intense. Like, I can remember what her hair smells like. I <laughs> can, rem- or, or I can remember, you know, staring into his nostril holes and seeing the hairs there. Why can't I remember his name? Why is this so intense? And yet the name eludes me. I should know this person. I was trapped in a cave with them for three weeks. We had to do unspeakable yeah. things to survive. Why can't I remember his first name? <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> no, the reason you couldn't remember his first name is because you know what he did to you? He he made a burr hole in your skull to expose <laughs> a small part of your brain. But what's the word for that process when you drill a little hole in somebody's skull? Well, your answer, of course, is trepanation or trepanning. Yeah. Or if you're a modern neurosurgeon, you might call it craniotomy, smarty pants. But yeah. we're, we're referring to the uh, the Stone Age practice. Yes. Here. <laughs> That's a good one because it's a word that I bet a lot of people have heard at some point, but you don't use it all that often unless you're us. Yeah. Yeah. It's come up quite a bit here. Uh, but and, and certainly our listeners may have it stored away as well. But otherwise, it didn't come up in the real world too often. Okay, so as we've mentioned, there are a bunch of different theories that have been proposed over the years as to how you might explain different versions of the tip of the tongue state. Mm-hmm. But the real question, of course, I know people people want the answer to is how do you overcome it? Or maybe just how do you avoid making it worse? Because it truly can feel like agony. It's a petty agony, yeah. but it's agony nonetheless. Okay, never fear. We do actually have some news for you on on how to affect your tip of the tongue recurrent states, but it might not all be good news. Uh, so, so let's start with some particularly bad news, Robert. 
Did you know that the more time you spend in the tip of the tongue state, the less likely you are to remember the word the next time? This is crazy because it make because it's easy to fall into that thinking where I don't want to grab my smartphone. I want to think of think of this up myself, even if it takes me, you know, the better part of an hour. I'm going to reach it myself. It feels like that should strengthen the muscle, right? Well, I mean, there might be something to that, as we're going to see from a study in in just a second. But how many times does that process lead to correct resolution of the tip of the tongue state? A lot of times, you just fail, don't you? Well, I don't fail. Not with, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or you end up cheating. Well, that's the thing. I either end up cheating eventually, but I feel like if I apply my mind to it long enough, I I get there with actors' names because that's my sickness. But uh, but yeah, I, I can't think of a single situation where I've said, "Well, I just can't think of who played um, who was Danny's mom in uh, Kubrick's The Shining." Oh. Shelly Duvall. Yeah, Shelly Duvall. Duvall. Hi, also, wait, Duvall. was she also olive oil in the Robert Altman uh, Popeye movie? I believe she was, yes. <laughs> yeah, she was great. Uh, but yeah, okay, so uh, there's a study from 2008 by scientists uh, Amy Beth Warriner and Karen R. Humphreys called Learning to Fail, Reoccurring Tip of the Tongue States. You can already tell from the title that this is going to bring some bad news for people who have this petty agony of the, mm-hmm. the tip of the tongue journey. Um, so the hypothesis going into this experiment was that if you make an error once, you're more likely to make it again by way of what they call a, quote, implicit learning mechanism. The more you fail, you the better you forge that path to failure. If you go with the metaphor we had earlier about blazing a trail through the woods mm-hmm. every time you walk down the wrong path to the wrong destination that path just gets better and better defined you clear right. more brush out of the way you make footprints you you trample down and and it just becomes easier and easier to find your way to failure every time so how did this study work they played a definition game kind of like the one we've been playing where they read you a definition of a of a low frequency word what's the word And when a subject entered a TOT state, they were randomly given a delay of either 10 seconds or 30 seconds to recall the word. And then after the delay period, the experimenter would give them the word. So if you're looking for sarcophagus, you can't get it for either 10 seconds or 30 seconds at random. They'd then give you the word sarcophagus. Oh, okay. And two days later, the participants came back to the lab to be tested again on the same words. Hmm. And some participants got stuck on the same words they'd been stuck on just two days before. And strangely, the results of the test showed that tip of the tongue states were twice as likely to happen on words where the subject spent 30 seconds in the tip of the tongue state than in words where they spent 10 seconds in the tip of the tongue state. Hmm. So the longer you spent in that state of saying, I know this, I know this, but not being able to call it up, the worse you got at remembering the word in the future. Uh, and in the words of the authors, quote, we argue that this longer delay in a t- TOT state amounts to a greater implicit learning of the erroneous state. You're just practicing how to get worse. Huh. And I, uh, you know, one of the interesting questions I was thinking about was what to do with this information in a general sense, because I do certainly believe that you can practice yourself to get worse at something. I, I know a lot of people have a kind of... um very broadly practice positive mindset. I know I encountered this in writing workshops where it was just sort of the idea that uh, there's no such thing as bad practice. The more you write, the better you're going to get. And I, I do generally, of course, think practice makes people better at almost any craft or skill, but not all practice is good. I, I am personally of the opinion that you can write yourself into a rut that makes you a worse writer the more you do it. Well, one one way that I uh, was thinking about this earlier is in terms of uh, of, of doing yoga. Um, like that's something I can uh, relate to since I uh, I practice yoga. But yeah, you can practice yoga every day. You can go to a yoga class every day. But if you're being instructed to do a pose in a way that uh, is incorrect or is in some way like long term de- detrimental to you, like you know something where you're putting too much pressure on your knee or you're bracing yourself against your knee in a weird way. Um, yeah, you can practice something the wrong way yeah. and and ultimately make things worse. Yeah. 
in a way that you're you're not just being unproductive, but you're literally backtracking. Your your things are getting worse for you. Yeah, I agree. And so uh, there, there's a follow up to this though that does have an interesting tip we can take away. Uh, one of the authors of this original study, Karen Humphreys, co-authored another study that came out just last year in 2015 with uh, uh, Maria C. D'Angelo, and it was called Tip of the Tongue States Reoccur Because of Implicit Learning, But Resolving Them Helps. So they're building on this previous research that said that speakers tend to exhibit uh, taught states for the same words over and over. And they played this same game again, the definition game. I'll read you a definition. You give me the low frequency word. And they actually carried out six different experiments in the study. They found a range of things. Uh, one of them that they just replicated earlier findings about the error state making things worse, what we were just talking about. You can practice how to fail and get better at failing. Um, uh, you, you sit there in the tot state and you're just getting worse and worse at remembering the word. But they also found that subjects could decrease their likelihood of experiencing this tot state on a single word in the future if they were able to resolve the tot state on their own, as opposed to not resolving it or having the word supplied by a third party. So or if a you, smartphone. Right. Okay. So if you can figure out a way to to find that word from from your own mind without cheating, you are less likely to have the tot state for that word in the future. But then again, I mean, that's kind of not very helpful advice, is it? Like, just be told you must solve this problem in order to not continue having this problem. It certainly makes tots, uh, when you experience them, uh, feel more like a ticking time bomb, right? Right. But it, it, it sounds, though, like the, the ideal situation here is you need to make sure that you and your, your immediate circle of, uh, you know, family or friends are in a position to where you're, they're going to help you get it yourself. Exactly, because Quickly. fortunately they, they did find that this works. They figured out this way uh, that the experimenter can help without negating the corrective effect of self-resolution. Mm-hmm. So you just give hints. That That's the way to resolve the tot state. If the experimenter gives what they called orthographic cues, so basically cues related to like the spelling of the word, this would allow people to correct the bad retrieval pathway themselves. And the authors conclude, quote, these findings reinforce the notion that the language production system is dynamic and continually learning from experience, even when that experience is errorful. OK, well, let me try one out on everybody to, to, to experiment with this. Who played the secretary in Ghostbusters? All right. Can you think of it? If you can't, let's not just give away the answer. Right. What are some hints? Uh, All right. What word, what letter does it start with? Uh, first name begins with A. Last name begins with P. Last name sounds like something you might boil water in. Answer, Annie Potts. Oh, there yeah. you go. So hopefully that was less uh, damaging to your brain because we, we we supplied a few hints along the way so that you could still get it yourself. Unless we got there before you were able, you were able to say it yourself, in which case, I'm sorry, we condemned you to possible future tots with any We should have asked you to pause it. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, we didn't want you to spend too long on it either. Yeah, okay. So it may seem like there's essentially an ascending order of preference if you want to v- avoid future tot states. So it sounds like the worst case is probably just sitting in the tot state and never resolving it. it right. You don't want to do that. Uh, better but still not great is looking up the answer. Better but still not the best is looking up the answer very quickly, as quickly as you can, so mm-hmm. you spend as little time as possible in that tot state. But if you're on your own, let, you know, unless you want to call a friend, that's the best thing to do. Right. And then, uh, so the best option seems like uh, figuring out the name for yourself and, if necessary, getting hints from people around you that have to do with, like, what letter it starts with or what it sounds like. This would be something worthwhile in future versions of Siri, right? So that Siri's not just answering your question, but Siri's providing you a hint so that you can get it yourself quickly. Interesting. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. that would just be about being able to ask a specific question like, Siri, what is the first letter in the first name of the secretary in Ghostbusters? Oh man, if I oh, would I shell out for an unlocked iPhone if I could just get Siri to do that? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, now, are there any other any other clear answers on ways to avoid tot states? I don't know if we found any other clear ones. Not clear maybe ones. some confused ones. Yeah, like the coffee thing is confusing. Um, 
like maybe drink coffee or maybe not. It depends on where you look. Uh, we were looking at 2014 paper, caffeine priming in the tip of the tongue, evidence for plasticity in the uh, phonological system. And that found that caffeine can both increase and decrease the number of tots depending on the experiment. This study found that caffeine might hinder your short-term recall of certain words. While past studies have uh, have illustrated that caffeine can perhaps help prevent tots, so maybe we shouldn't use tots here because everybody wants to increase their number of tots. We we should say oh, yes. tip of the tongue states. Yeah, well, you know, I, I I like tots. It goes back to childhood when you're in the lunch line at school. Who doesn't wish you had more tots? They they only give you like seven. It's horrible. Well, the thing is, now I am going to discuss them as tots so when i'm trying to think of someone's name now among uh you know when i'm hanging out with people i'm going to start saying i'm having a tot here i'm having a tot <laughs> and they're going to have no clue what i'm talking about right uh, another way to involve drugs if you might want to avoid tots in a in a cheating roundabout way mm-hmm. uh is taking something like lorazepam <laughs> but <laughs> now we're not advising you take lorazepam rec- recreationally or even to improve performance because it doesn't actually improve performance it's not going to help you avoid tots in that w- it will help you claim the word earlier it may help you avoid tots in that you'll be wrong and you won't care. You're not going to experience that. This is what they found is that uh, when people are on this drug and they get the word wrong, they don't have this sense of, oh, I know it, it's imminent. Mm-hmm. They just say whatever retrieves. Yeah. So they just say, yeah, yeah. Rex Harrison played the secretary in Ghostbusters. Yeah. And they just never have the tots. Yeah. All right, let's have another one, Joe. What do you got? Okay, how about this one? What's the time and date happens twice each year where the sun crosses over the celestial equator where the night and the day are the same length? Answer. Esquilax. Huh. No, it's Equinox. Esquilax. Esquilax, of course, is uh, um, a medication that you take uh, when you can't poop, right? Escalax, no. Escalax, yeah. a mythical creature? An Escalax? Escalax is a mythical creature that you summon when you can't poop. <laughs> it has the magical ability to help you poop. I think the Escalax comes from The Simpsons. It's a, <laughs> it's a horse with the head of a rabbit and the body of a rabbit. Ah, okay. I was not familiar with that one. That's uh, a good one. <laughs> okay, one more fact I wanted to talk about before we wrap up, which I did think was kind of interesting. And that's simply the fact that there is an equivalent phenomenon. Now, you said the the uh, the earlier study found that there wasn't a tip of the tongue expression in American Sign Language. Right. But there is a recognized tip of the fingers phenomenon huh. in deaf signers. And I think this is really interesting because when I'm thinking about what's going on in the tip of the tongue phenomenon, there seems to be a disconnect between the semantics. You have the semantics. You know what the word means or you know what the actor's face looks like or what movies he or she was in or something like that. You know, you have all the meaning information. You just can't connect it to the word, to the sounds of the words. There's a disconnect between semantics and phonology. But in, uh, in, in sign language, you're not necessarily involving sounds. There you might be involving uh, hand motions and, and different types of where the hands are placed, what you do with your fingers, the movement involved in the hand motions to gesture the name. And so uh, th- there have been observations and studies about this tip of the fingers phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that was a very interesting parallel. It seems like the, the tip of whatever doesn't necessarily have to be sound. Yeah, that's interesting. It takes the same mental process outside of the the sonic realm. Yeah, like uh, one of the things observed about it is that signers were often able to recall the first letter of a finger-spelled word. Isn't that interesting? The same way that huh. you can usually, you know, you you can think, oh, Annie Potts. Or, well, you can't think of Annie Potts, but I know her name started with an A. Huh. Uh, people who, who deaf signers can do the same thing. It started with a, and then the hand sign for an A. Interesting. The, there's a whole study about this. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's called Tip of the Fingers, Experiences by Deaf Signers, uh, Insights into the Organization of a Sign-Based Lexicon in Psychological Science in 2005. Anyway, I, I find this topic really interesting, not just because of the phenomenon, but because of what I brought up at the uh, in the earlier section about how it, it highlights weird things about the nature of language that we don't usually think about. Like the, one of the things is what people talk about in semiotics, you know, the difference between the signifier and the signified. 
that we just often don't recognize that gap in between them, like the gap William James talks about right. there, uh, that, that it, we can so easily come to identify a word with the thing it means, but the word is not the thing. And these, these gaps where we have the object in mind, we have the face in mind, but we can't make the sounds to make it, uh, highlight some of the weird uh, mechanical nature of meaning and its relationship to science in our universe. Yeah, it's like when the machine is working, we don't think twice about it because we are we are the machine. Yeah. Uh, but but when 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 there are catastrophic errors, that's one thing. But these are every day, or at least according to the the, the study we're looking at, at least every week. Uh, we experience these errors, and it provides us just a little insight into what's going on. I think these errors can bring up interesting facts about our brain in the same way that seeing glitches in a computer game can make you understand a lot more about programming and how the game works. Right. Uh, because you might be, say, you're playing a computer game in some kind of 3D rendered world, and you're just having it as a pure experience. You're in the world. You know, mm-hmm. it's all real, and your character is a real being, and the world is real. And suddenly, a glitch starts happening. You run through a wall or something. Oh yeah. Or, or part of your, you know, your arm comes off and floats free or mm-hmm. something, and it suddenly snaps you back into the reality. That that none of this is a true organic real experience, but it's all bits, you know, objects and bits of code that are functioning together perfectly well most of the time. Uh, but suddenly you understand what all the different bits and shapes are and how they're made and how they have to come together to create this seamless experience. Yeah, there's always something there's something kind of magical about like the first time you walk through a wall in Doom and you're standing in the the sort of uh, the, the ether outside of the of the game, and you but you can look down and see those hallways just floating in the nothing. Yeah, and then of course up above, there's the face of John Cazale <laughs> looking over all of us, indeed, along with Annie Potts and Don Knotts. Yes, <laughs> a complete pantheon of uh, of tot uh, actors. Okay, that's all I got. You got anything else? That's all I got. Um, hey, but I know that. Everyone out there has some experience with this. What's the word that always sets you off? Yeah, what's that that one actor that never comes to mind uh, when you try and and, imag- and uh, try try and remember their names? We'd love to hear from you on all of that. Uh, in the meantime, check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find oh podcast episodes, videos. We got some cool new animated things that are going up. Where it's uh, little animated uh, shorties that are uh, clipped out of uh, existing audio episodes. Uh, there's one up on ants. We have one coming up soon on trepanation. Uh, go check that out. Uh, also, we. Have blog posts there links out to our social media accounts such as twitter and facebook we are blow the mind on both of those we are stuffed to blow your mind on um, tumblr and i believe we're blow the mind on instagram we're just getting that one up and rolling and if you want to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other recent episodes or if you want to let us know that thing that thing that always sets you off you just know it it's just there i'm just about to get it but you can't quite get it you can email us and you may just have to describe what it is because you can't come up with the word at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 